you have your Bibles, I'd invite you, if you would, to take them out, turn them on, and join me in Isaiah chapter 9 this morning. Isaiah chapter 9. Again, I just want to say welcome. I'm excited, and I'm excited that our kiddos get to hang out with us this morning. Um, We are having Family Sunday today. We try to do this fairly regularly so that our kids are constantly uh, reminded, because we believe that they're not the church of tomorrow. Amen? They're the church of today, and so we want them to know we love them, that they're part of this congregation as well. So we have been, as I said earlier, um, celebrating Advent by looking at some of the major themes of the uh, coming of Jesus Christ and the promises of God. Advent simply means coming. And so we are expecting the coming of Christmas Day. Uh, my five-year-old, turned five last week, got up first thing this morning and came running in the, in the kitchen and said, Daddy, just 13 more days till Christmas. And so he's excited and we're, we're all excited. And so we're anticipating not only the, the coming of Christ at Christmas, but reminded that just as Jesus came in the past, he's promised to come again. And so the, the fact that God keeps his promises instills hope, we saw last week. One of God's promises is that he will establish peace. And today we're focusing on this concept of joy. And joy is something that is so countercultural and counter to our world. The idea of this deep-seated sense of, of, of happiness that defies the circumstances that we're in is something that our world struggles with. The reality is, as we look into our world, there isn't just this, this sense where everything is always okay and happy days and, and the, the blue skies shining. But the reality is, as we look at our world, suffering is something that is real. And oftentimes we struggle with the suffering that's in our lives as Christians. And the world around us suffers with it as well. As I was thinking through this, a story came to my mind that I can barely remember, but I can remember being in an elementary school and someone reading this story. I I looked it up this morning and and found the story title. It was A Simple Trade. And all I can remember from this is this story of this little girl and this older gentleman who were really good friends. And there's an accident. And I, I looked it up to make sure what happened. And the little girl tried to, to ice skate for the very first time. And when she fell, she scraped her knee. And this friend who was her next door neighbor, who, was, who kind of was a caregiver for her and, and watched her as she was hurt and she was wounded, he, he pulled her aside and he said, don't be saddish. And he pulled out of his, his pocket a radish. And he said, don't be saddish, have a radish. And that's the only thing I remember about the story, but that line stuck with me my whole life, and I say it to my kids all the time. Don't be saddish, have a radish. I don't have a radish. I don't like radishes. I didn't know what radishes were. But I remember that that line from that story, don't be saddish, have a radish. And the reality is that our world tries to deal with everything, whether it's a scrape of the knee or serious suffering, with just uh, some, some things that are just as trite. It says, turn that frown upside down. Don't worry, be happy. Because we don't really understand or really know what to do with the suffering and the struggles in our lives. And if we've matured at all beyond those trite ideas of don't worry, be happy, or turn that frown upside down, what we do with the problems in our lives is we either ignore them or we try to drown them out. 
And we drown them through medication. We drown them through alcohol or pornography or any other kind of addiction that we just dump on top of what it is that we're suffering through and feeling rather than actually facing the difficulties of our lives. But when we look in Scripture, we see that Scripture calls us to something infinitely greater. Though the world's example is feeble, when we read Scripture, we consistently come across men and women who are able to show joy in the midst of the worst circumstances that we could ever possibly imagine. One example is in Acts chapter 13 where the apostles have, have just been, uh, had a success in their ministry, and the Jewish people in the city rise up, and they, they instigate a revolt, and the, the apostles are persecuted. But in the face of that persecution, we read in 1352, the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. We read elsewhere in Acts that the apostles found, counted it joy to be considered worthy of suffering for Jesus Christ. We see joy in the midst of difficult circumstances. And we're actually commanded at multiple points in Scripture to be joyful. James chapter 1 verse 2, James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Speaking of persecution, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, 11 and 12, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Maybe you've known someone that in the midst of extremely difficult circumstances, they nevertheless had this attitude and this atmosphere of their personality that seemed to just be at peace. And was able to find and, and even laugh in the face of some of the most horrific circumstances that you or I could ever possibly imagine. Where does that, that joy, the ability to do that, come from? How is that possible? What fuels and sustains joys in the face of the darkness of our world and the darkness and the difficulties of our lives? In these verses that we're going to look at this morning, Isaiah teaches us that our hope in God's promises and in his person is what sustains our joy regardless of the circumstances of our lives. Who he is and what he's promised to do is what sustains our joy regardless of what goes on in our lives. So look with me, if you will, in Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Isaiah writes, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Would you pray with me? Father, as we now come before your word, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would work in our hearts. You are the one who gave this vision to Isaiah thousands of years ago, to see through the suffering that he was in the middle of and the suffering that was yet to to come and beyond that to a joy that is the fruit and the blessing of your promises. It's accomplished by your person. Holy Spirit, I pray that even now you would impart to us that same faith and that same joy that gripped Isaiah in these verses. And that we too might be people, Father God, who are rejoicing. Who rejoice no matter the difficulties of our life. No matter the fears and the anxieties and the sufferings. Heavenly Father, I pray that in this moment and in this time, you would teach us that joy is not rooted in our circumstance. Which ebb and flow and change. Which improve and become worse. But instead, our joy is anchored in who you are, what you've done, what you will do, and that is unchanging. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. These verses break down into two sections, the first three verses and the second three verse, or second four verses. But in verses 1, 2, and 3, Isaiah promises that joy is going to return to the people of Israel. He promises the return of joy. In the opening lines of verse 1, Isaiah presupposes what he's just prophesied was going to happen in Isaiah chapter 8. In Isaiah chapter 8, he talks about a gloom that is inevitably going to come. He talks about the suffering that is going to happen to the people of God. And this suffering is the result of God's punishment of the people. When God first met with Abraham, God made a promise to Abraham. And embedded in that promise, God promises him three things. A people, he promises him a place, a land, and he promises also a a prominence among the nations. He promises Abraham that he's going to have offspring. That offspring is going to have a place, a land that they are going to be able to dwell in and going to thrive in. And then because of their presence in that land and their faithfulness to the Lord and the relationship with him, that the nations are going to be blessed that they are going to be blessed in and through Israel. But at the end of the law, he warned them that if they rejected him, if they went after other gods, they would lose these things. And true to his word, the Lord punished his people. He punished Israel for their idolatry and for their sin. You don't have to go very far back up into chapter 8. Well, you see that instead of coming to the Lord, they were going to mediums and necromancers to find answers. And so they have rejected God and sought their own ways, blazed their own paths in order to establish their power and their place in the world. They've forsaken the Lord. They have sinned. And there is always consequences for sin. Always consequences for sin. We can try to hide. 
We can try to keep our sins secret and locked away in the dark places of our lives and the, the closets of our homes, but the truth of the matter is, I may not see, your spouse may not see, but God sees. And there's always consequences to our sin. Our sin does not only affect our, our, us as individuals, but our sin affects those around us as well. And God is faithful and God is patient. And we oftentimes take advantage of his patience. Paul writes in Romans chapter 2 verse 4, Do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? A lot of times we can, we can assume that because God isn't intervening in our lives, that God is just either um, choosing to, to just turn a blind eye or let us get away with it. But the reality is God's kindness is meant to give us the space and the patient, with his patience to give us the space where we can draw near to him again. But the Bible promises that God is faithful to discipline his children. The author of Hebrews says this in chapter 12. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and sons. God's patience has a limit in which he will step in and he will discipline his children and he will punish the wicked. So if you're in that season where you think that I'm just getting away with it, God is turning his blind eye, God's not doing anything, there are no consequences in my life, then consider the fact that God may be being patient with you. And now is the time for you to come to the Lord and seek his face and seek his forgiveness. But maybe you're in that season right now where God is disciplining you. That's not a rejection, but that's an act of his faithfulness and his love. To bring discipline into our lives, to draw us back to him. And that's what God does to the nation of Israel as he disciplines them by bringing the nation of Assyria into Israel and conquering them and taking them out of the land. Destroying and, and killing people in war, ripping them from the land, humiliating them. Do you see how God is taking back the people and the place and the prominence that should have been Israel's because they rejected him? But God's discipline is not forever. Right? We're supposed to be talking about joy, not suffering and discipline. But joy is, is only seen and understood when it is held in contrast to the suffering of the world. And to the darkness of sin and discipline. So God's discipline is not forever. Instead, Isaiah sees through the discipline to what is on the other side. Isaiah is not looking back at what Assyria is going to do. Isaiah is looking forward in time. As he prophesies the coming discipline of the Lord. But he sees through a series attack and conquering of Israel to a joy that is on the other side of it. He sees the return, the restoration of that joy. In fact, he is so confident that it's going to happen, even though it's not there yet, he talks about it in the past tense, as if it's already done. In these verses, he talks about the people who walked past tents in darkness, have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. 
He says, verse, uh, verse 1, in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea. Past tense. That hasn't happened yet. Instead, Isaiah is using a tool that we call the prophetic perfect, which means he sees a future event as though it has already happened because God has said it. And since God has said it, it is as good as done. Nothing can change it. So Isaiah sees the joy that's on the other side of this. And what he sees when he looks is he sees a multiplication of the nation. He's seen an increase of its joy. He sees a harvest. He sees a victory in verse 3. That they will rejoice before the Lord as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. These people who are going to be defeated, who are going to be disciplined, who are going to be plucked from their land, Isaiah sees for them a restoration of a harvest and a victory over their enemies. He sees the returning of those promises from God of a people in a place and a prominence in the world. He talks there about the harvest. Think about it like this. You've seen somebody in your life and who's seen, you've, maybe you've experienced the joy of coming to the end of the year and you're not exactly sure what, is on the, uh, what, what it holds, but all of a sudden, out of nowhere, somebody shows up and says, hey, by the way, I know that we hadn't talked about this, but we looked at the numbers and, and by the way, here's you a surprise bonus for the end of the year. Which I just want to say on behalf of my family and the rest of the staff, thank you to whoever it was that was the anonymous donor who provided for the staff last week. That was such a tremendous blessing. And I want to say thank you on behalf of us all for that act of generosity. That was a surprise. And it was a great experience for us to be able to celebrate the victory that comes with the spoil. Maybe, maybe you've experienced what it is to have your favorite sports team win that national championship, the World Series or the Super Bowl or something like that. And you've seen them in that room celebrating and they're spraying each other with champagne and all kinds of other stuff. And they're just, just rejoicing in what has taken place. That's the image that, that Isaiah has of these people on the other side of the Assyrian attack. They're celebrating like they just got the biggest bonus at the end of the year. They're celebrating like their team has won the greatest title of all time. They have this joy. This joy that Isaiah declares and sees is there, even though the worst of the suffering is yet to come. And that joy is is able to fill Isaiah. And God grace lets Isaiah see the reasons for the return for that joy. The first three verses, we see the return of the joy coming to Galilee, coming to the nations, coming to to Zebulun and Naphtali. When Assyria attacked, they came from the north. And so the first thing that they destroyed were the northern areas. And that northern area of Naphtali and, and Zebulun and Galilee is what Isaiah sees are the first ones who are going to receive this joy. And they receive this joy, and the reasons for their joy are threefold. In verse 4 and 5 and 6, the ESV has those words for in there, which indicates that he's giving a reason for the rejoicing that he has seen and the return of the joy that they have. The first thing that he sees is that what God is going to do is God is going to end all their oppression. Unfortunately, oppression is a consequence of our sin. Unfortunately, oppression is as real today as it ever has been throughout human history. The reality is slavery still exists in the world today. 
And to not know that is to be willfully blind at this point. To know that there are young women around the world who are being plucked from their homes and sold on the market all over the world. Oppression exists. It's a consequence of our sin and the sin of the world. Because the influence of sin drives the strong to prey upon the weak, to abuse their power. And unfortunately, when we look in history and we see times and places where the oppressed have gained power, they're very rarely ever better than the oppressors that they took the power from in the first place. It's not very long before the oppressed become oppressors in their own right as they misuse and abuse justice. Oppression is real, and the people of Israel are headed towards oppression, but they had suffered oppression before. In, verses, in verse 4, Isaiah uses language that reflects on the past of Israel. This notion of the yoke and the staff and the rod should bring back to the mind of the Israelites, and for those of us who are Bible scholars, their oppression and their slavery in the land of Egypt. As they were under the yoke of wicked men and wicked pharaohs. But God had rescued them from that. But they weren't just under oppression while they were in Egypt before they came into the land. They were frequently under oppression while they were in the land because of their disobedience. And so if you'll remember, we did a study through the book of Judges where repeatedly the people of God walked away from the Lord. They disobeyed Him. And God would punish them by sending oppressors upon them. And so when He talks here about the God's delivery in the day of Midian, that's a direct reference to one of the judges, Gideon who had an army of 32,000 soldiers that God boiled down to just 300 men who went to face off against an army of Midianites that numbered in the hundreds of thousands. Because God's work through them, they never lifted a sword. They never did anything. Instead, all they did was stand on a hill and break some jars and shine some lights and blow some trumpets. And God then created chaos in the camp of the Midianites. And they destroyed themselves. At the right time under those times of oppression, God raised up a man who would deliver them. Moses out of Egypt. Gideon in this particular instance in the, in the history of Israel. So Isaiah looks back to see what God has done. And in that he sees what God is going to do. That there will be a day when God will establish his hope. He was not abandoned his people, but instead he will defeat those who are his, their oppressors. Those that have oppressed Israel in the past have been defeated. And so Isaiah can have confidence that the ones that are still coming will be defeated as well. And it will be God who does it. It will be God who ends oppression once and for all. And that's the purpose of Advent. We don't just look back at Jesus coming to the world as a baby so that we can remember and get a warm fuzzy inside of ourselves and have a reason to give presents to one another. We look back at Jesus' Advent into the world to establish in our minds and in our hearts an anchor point where God fulfilled all of his promises of the Old Testament in Jesus Christ where Jesus came into the world as the fulfillment of the prophecies. He lived the life that we can't. He died the death that we deserve. And he went, he was raised from the dead, and he went and ascended to the heavens, where he sits at the right hand of the Father, and he has promised he's coming again. We look back at the anchor of God keeping his promises in Jesus so that we can look forward with hope and with joy that he will keep his promises in the future. And the promise will be that he will end all of oppression. 
But the other thing, the reason that we see for their joy is not just that God ends oppression, but he also ends hostility as well. Just as oppression is a consequence for our sin, so conflict is a consequence of our sin as well. You don't have to get very far into the Bible before you are faced with conflict. It's just Genesis chapter 4. Right after the disobedience of Adam and Eve, their two sons immediately come into conflict and Cain kills Abel. And so has been the story of humanity from that point forth and forevermore. As conflict has plagued our marriages and our homes and our families and our churches and our communities and our politics and and even our identity as nations in the way that we interact with one another. Conflict plagues every level of human existence. And it does so because conflict plagues your soul and my soul. James writes in James chapter 4, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Where there's conflicting desires between two individuals, there will inevitably be conflict. But the prophets repeatedly promise a day when peace will reign, when weapons will be beaten into plowshares, when, as Pastor Mike shared earlier, lions will lay down with lambs, when there will be no more conflict When conflict will come to an end. And that's what Isaiah sees in verse 5. But what I see that's so special in this is he looks forward to the end of conflict. He's going to talk in other places about weapons being melted down and beaten into plowshares. But here he talks about their uniforms. That the boots that trampled for war and that the uniforms stained in blood will be burned. Not only will there be no need for weapons in the future, but the very uniforms used to distinguish allies from enemies are gone. Burned up and useless from that time forth and forevermore. Because God has brought his peace. When he will end conflict once and for all. And what brings peace, we see, is not some conquering hero necessarily. It's not some immortal army that establishes everything perfectly. But instead, it's a baby. A child born. The Israelites will be able to rejoice because God will end oppression. He will end conflict, but he will also establish the reign of the righteous one forever. The the Old Testament concept of peace, the word maybe you've heard it before, shalom, is not just the absence of conflict. But it's also the presence of good relationships between conflicting parties. It's the presence, as we've seen here, of harvest. It's the presence of rejoicing. It's the presence of spoil. It's all of these things. It's not just the absence of something, but instead it's this picture of wholeness, completeness. Not only are there the factions not fighting each other anymore, they're actually working together for something greater. And the one that brings that about is this righteous one. In this case, the elimination of suffering and conflict is because of the presence of a unifying figure more powerful than we could have ever possibly imagined. And yet that powerful one is humble and small and weak. A child that is born. A son 
It's not just a human child born into the world. So there's some sense in this language that this one who is coming, who is the righteous one who's going to fix everything, is going to end oppression and and end conflict, is like humanity in some sense. A son specifically that is given by God. But beyond that, this child bears names that expose the reality that though he is like us in some way, he is completely unlike us in the most powerful and significant ways. He is wonderful counselor. Someone who gives counsel is someone who who gives wisdom, and we know that God is the source of all wisdom. That God gives wisdom, and this word here for wonderful is this supernatural kind of sense. And so this one who is going to come is one who is going to be a counselor of supernatural wisdom or a supernatural counselor in some way, who's going to have knowledge that that God and God alone should have. He is not just that, he is mighty God. This baby that is coming, Isaiah clearly says from this point right here that this one who is coming is God himself. The word that he uses here about mighty God is the same words that he will use to describe God on his throne later on in the book of Isaiah. He is mighty God. He is everlasting Father. God and God alone is eternal and everlasting. No created being, no human being, no no human child has no beginning. God and God alone exists from before time began and will exist for all of eternity from this point forward. And this child that is coming will somehow be a father to the people who are suffering. And that's not in the sense we talk about in theology, the the Trinitarian notion of the father. But instead, that it talks about the character and the personality of this child that is going to come will be one that the nations are able to come to, that Israel is able to come to for the comfort that a father and protection that a father is supposed to give. He's the prince of peace. That notion that we talked about just now, shalom, this wholeness, this completeness, where everything is not just that is wrong is, is, is cast aside, but everything that is broken is fixed. Everything wrong is made right. That's who this coming, this divine Messiah. And what he will do when he gets here is he will reign with righteousness and with justice. The oppression won't have any place because Jesus will give justice. This Messiah will give righteousness. There won't be any conflict because he will end it all and he will reign perfectly and he will do it forever. Because God is the one who will accomplish it. The zeal of the Lord will do this thing. Because God loves his creation. As we said it before, the, 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 the God who says in Genesis chapter 2 that the world that he created is very good is not the God who's just going to crumple it up and throw it in the trash can in the end of it. But God is working to redeem all that he has created. He is working to redeem our lives. He is working to redeem the creation around us. And there will be a day when all that we broke because of our sin will be fixed in our lives, in our relationships, and in the world around us. Because God is zealous for his name and for his glory and for all that he has put his imprint on, which includes you and me as image bearers of God. He is zealous for our salvation. He is zealous for our joy. He is zealous for our faith. And so this righteous one who reigns and rules, who ends oppression and conflict, is Jesus Christ. 
That baby born in Bethlehem who began his ministry in Galilee of the Gentiles, who suffered oppression, who died as a result of the oldest conflict in the universe, and in so doing, defeated death and sin once and for all. How ironic that the one who came to end suffering once and for all did so by suffering himself, even though he didn't deserve it. And so despite the suffering that Isaiah sees coming, despite the suffering that Isaiah is existing in at this moment as he's struggling with wicked kings and wicked people in Israel, he's nevertheless able to see through it to the promises of God that he trusts and that he knows will come true. And that is the source of his joy in the face of his suffering. That confidence in what Jesus had done and what Jesus will do is what gave the apostles the the ability to rejoice in the midst of their suffering. It's what gave Paul the ability to sing hymns and songs of worship while he was chained in a Roman dungeon. It's what has fueled Christian worship in the most difficult times throughout history. It's Christmas time. And so maybe you're getting ready for Christmas with a baking day. Sarah and her mom have an annual baking day. And she always likes to bake at home. And one of my favorite things to do is when she's done mixing the stuff, she'll give the boys the the mixers, right? But she always gives me the bowl. And I get to to lick and, and eat what's in the bowl. And that, that taste in that moment is though all of the elements are there in some small sense... That is a foretaste of what's to come because once it goes in the oven and once it gets baked and all of those things are are, are brought together, there's an an entirely different something that that comes out of that. But at the same time, in that moment, as I'm I'm taking that batter and I'm eating that batter, I get a, a glimpse and a reminder of what is waiting for me once it's done. That's what Isaiah gives us in this is he knows that there's still suffering, there's still time in the pressure cooker of life. But he can see through it because he has faith and hope in the promises of God. And in having faith and hope in the promises of God, because God has kept all of his promises in the past and will keep all of his promises in the future, he's able to have joy. That's the source of joy for you and for me. It's by faith that we share in the joy that's to come. That we get a foretaste of the joy that's promised when Jesus returns and wipes away every tear from our eyes. Makes everything wrong, right. And ends suffering and oppression and conflict once and for all. That's what's going to happen. That's the source of joy for you and for me. When we set our eyes and our hearts on this, we're able to experience a joy that defies our circumstances. That confounds the world. So my question for you today is, do you live in that joy? Do you have the relationship with Jesus Christ that is the foundation for that joy? Do you have Jesus Christ and and the promises of God so firmly rooted inside your heart in faith that you know that no matter what happens in your life, no matter what happens in the world around you, no matter what happens in, in Washington or around the world or with the vaccine that's coming out, you're anchored in the promises of God and you know that the future is in his hands. And you can have joy because you trust in Jesus. If not, then I would invite you to trust in Jesus right here and right now. Cry out for salvation. 
Because the Bible promises us that when we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just to cleanse us of all of our unrighteousness. When we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. The promise of being saved is we'll get to spend eternity in that perfection with Jesus. But maybe you're here this morning and you've not been dealing well with the suffering and the trials and the tribulations of your life. And you've been running to something that is sinful in order to find joy that can only be found in Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And today is the day when you need to no longer take advantage of the patience of God, but fall on your knees and ask his forgiveness to change you from the inside out, to give you a greater hope and a greater joy than you've ever experienced before. He's ready and he's willing. Again, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to cleanse us of all of our unrighteousness. He'll cleanse you today. How do you need to come running to God for joy in this difficult time? Would you take a moment, bow your head and close your eyes. Go before the Lord. Ask the Holy Spirit how it is that you need to find your joy in Jesus Christ this week. Your salvation in him and in him alone. And I'll come back and close this in prayer in a moment.